It's good to see everyone this morning. Appreciate uh, well being here and uh, participating in the worship to our God on this, the first day of the week. It's always an encouragement to be able to come together and to be with those of like precious faith and to be renewed and be refreshed by our coming together and worshiping our God and joining our voices together in song and lifting up our prayers and gathering around the table. These are wonderful things that we get to engage in on the first day of the week, and uh, I'm so glad that we can do that together on this day. This morning I wanted to speak about um, something that, w- that came up in our reading, in our uh, Bible reading this morning, and that is about the fullness of time. I read there from Galatians 4, and amidst that reading there in verses 1 through 7, in verse 4 it says, But when the fullness of time came, God sent his Son, born of a woman, born under the law. And so when we think about that idea of when the fullness of time came, it, it, at least in me it sparks some idea of, what does that mean? What does that mean that the fullness of time came? And I think you can probably... Uh, surmise very quickly that it was the time, it was the right time. It was when the time had, had filled up, the time that led up to Jesus coming to this earth. And so Paul writes there about the fullness of time. When that fullness of time came, when God decided that Jesus Christ would come to the earth, that's when he came. So I wanted to talk this morning about that and explore a few things about this idea uh, of the fullness of time. And we'll start this way by asking ourselves a few of these questions. Why did Jesus come to earth when he did? What were the circumstances surrounding that? And we might think about it this way. Why did it take so long? (laughs) Ever thought about it in those terms? You know, there's a long time between between the uh, creation And when Jesus came into this world, that was a pretty long time, several thousand years. Why You might think to yourself, and certainly the Jews probably thought to themselves, why so long? Why did it take so long? The other side, for us, we might think of it this way. Why was it so long ago? You know, we're 2,000 years removed from it. That's a long time. And the earth keeps going. Things keep going. The sun keeps coming up every day. And seasons change. All these things that, are, that God set in motion, they're still going on. Why was it so long ago? What were the circumstances that brought it about? What all had to happen in order for God's plan to come to fruition, for the fullness of time to come? And along those lines, we can think about this. Was it God's plan all along? Did God plan for all this to happen in a certain way, in a certain time? Or was it just a matter of events that just unfolded in a happenstance kind of way? We can ask ourselves this question, too. When is he coming back? He's told us that he is. God told us that he is. Jesus says he's going to come back. When is that day? When might that fullness of time come? When Jesus comes back and judges the world, judges the nations, judges each and every one of us. So let's first talk about 
some worldly reasons. I don't talk about worldly things a lot, but in the context here, I, you know, we can see some things that transpired and made it just this time that it had to happen. You'll see as we go along. One of those things is, in the world that existed, when Jesus came into the world, when he came on the scene, for the most part there was a common language, at least in the Roman Empire. And that common language was the Koine Greek. I won't go into a whole lot of this, because I'm not a Greek scholar. But suffice it to say that most of the kingdom, most of the empire of Rome spoke the same language. So why is that important when it comes to when Jesus came? Well, if you're going to talk about a message that is going to go forth from Jerusalem into all the world, wouldn't it be uh, advantageous for the world to speak, for most of the world to speak the same language? Now we know, of course, that they didn't, and there's translations, and even on the day of Pentecost, you know, how the apostles were able to speak in other tongues so that others could understand them. But for the majority of the world, they spoke the same language. Another thing that's important in this is, uh, is the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. When we hear the New Testament uh, people and the writers quoting from the Old Testament, they're quoting from this, the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Now, sometimes there's Hebrew in there, too. But when they're talking about the common language, when they're quoting from the, the scriptures in the, in the common language, it would have been in Greek. So if we think about the worldly reasons why Jesus came when he did, they're mostly speaking the same language. They have the same texts. Another thing to consider. You might not think about this, but a common currency you know, we think about the dollar in the world today. Don't, you probably go in a lot of places, majority of the places in the world, and have a dollar, and, you know, you have spending power. You're going to have to exchange those things in a lot of places. A lot of places will take English dollars, take American dollars. In the Roman Empire, during the time of Jesus, there was a common currency. I think you're probably already thinking about what Jesus said about it. Remember when the Pharisees came to him, and they were trying to catch him? They were trying to catch him in, in a, you know, in a, in a lie, in a, in a rock and hard place, you know, as, as they were apt to do, or at least try to do. <laughs> they remember they came to him and they said, uh, should we render a poll tax? Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Remember what Jesus said to them? He said, give me a coin. And he said, whose inscription is on there? And as they said, Caesar. And he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and render to God the things that are God. So in that we see that there's a, there's a common currency. So what does that tell us? That tells us as, you're, as they're traveling about, as the apostles are going about and, and, and spreading the gospel message that they have in their pockets, ways that they can buy their food, buy their lodging, the things that they need. They have a currency that they can spend throughout the world at that time. So we see how that affects the spreading of the gospel. There's a saying, you've probably heard this before, all roads lead to Rome. Probably heard that somewhere along the way. Rome was a very advanced civilization. They had aqueducts that would bring water into the city of Rome. They had uh, all these building um, projects that were going on throughout their history. 
um, culminating in things like the Colosseum, the Pantheon, the Parthenon, all these big buildings. A lot of them are still standing, at least in ruin. In part, they're still standing. Very advanced culture. And one of the things they built were roads. So when they talk about how all roads lead to Rome, the idea was, um, in fact, there's a, in, in the city of Rome in, in antiquity, there was a, a monument that all the roads, according to lore, they all came to the converge at that one point. So all the roads lead to Rome. That means that people could travel easily. It was good for Rome because their, their armies could travel these roads so they could expand their empire and move back and forth. You can move from city to city. So when we're talking about the spreading of the gospel. We see Paul on these roads. You also see him going by ship, of course, when the time was right. But he's able to travel the roads, too. It was easy to get from place to place because of the Romans... The Romans had built these roads. So if you're going to spread the gospel, it'd be good to have a good system of roads already in place so you can make it easier to get from one place to the next. The last thing on this list, we talk about the fullness of time. Why did Jesus come when he did? We think about the crucifixion. Romans in their... um, in the height of their um, building, in the height of their intellectual pursuits and the, the, the things we just talked about in their building, they also perfected the, the method of putting people to death. And the crucifixion was a terrible, painful, gruesome way to die. And I don't mean to sound flippant when I say this, but it's true. It was also a cheap way to die. They simply nailed people to pieces of lumber and hung them up there to die, to asphyxiate, to slowly, painfully die. And so when we think, when we think about the way our Lord died, it was a very public way, it was a very painful way, is a very shameful way to be stripped naked and hung in front of people, to be cursed at, beaten, and left there to die. So when we come on the first day of the week and take of the Lord's body and his blood, are we thinking about that? How terrible a death it was our Lord died. It's important in understanding that, that it wasn't just that our Lord passed away of old age or anything else. He was put to death at the hands of men. And that says a lot about our faith. It says a lot about his faith to do what he did. Those are some worldly reasons. Let's look at some, some biblical reasons. And I wanted to... <laughs> I had to pare this down, you know. (laughs) It's always a good problem to have when you have too much information, right? Sometimes. (laughs) Um, You got to pare it down. So I wanted to try to trace a a line here as as succinctly as I could about the fullness of time and the beginning to the end. So we start at the beginning. Where did this um, plan of salvation begin? We go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. 
Remember the events there that happened in the, in the Garden of, of Eden with, with Eve and, and Adam, how they sinned against God? They ate of the fruit that they were not supposed to. When they did, sin entered the world. God punished them for what they did, but also that set into motion the redemption of man. God had to redeem man back to him because sin had come into the world. So that all begins right here in the events that takes place in chapter 3 of, of Genesis. And part of the, uh, the punishment that comes down to the serpent, who we find out in other scriptures and other places, was the devil. The punishment against him was, God says, I will put enmity, enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is the first messianic prophecy that we see in Scripture. This is pointing to the coming Messiah. Yes, the devil was going to bruise him on the heel, but the Messiah was going to bruise him on the head. That was going to be the death blow that will be given to Satan, whereas the bruising on the heel would be our Lord being put to death in the physical manner crucifixion, but that's not going to stop God's plan of redemption, redeeming man from his sins. So there's the beginning. And we can start to trace through then, as we're doing in our Wednesday night class, by the way, we're, we're, we're looking at God's redemption of man, how that story starts here and goes all the way through the Bible. Next place that we can pick it up is the promise that's made to Abraham. In chapter 12 of Genesis, there's that promise that's made to Abraham, the threefold promise, the land, the nation, and through your seed, all the nations will be blessed, the spiritual blessings that are given there to Abraham. And if we come over to chapter 22 of Genesis, throughout the, this time that we see that God is speaking to Abraham, he, he, he revisits, he revisits the, the promise that he's made to him. And in chapter 22 and verse 18, he says this, in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Very particular in that language, and we're going to follow that through here in just a moment. But this is the promise, all the way back there to Abraham, that through his seed all nations are going to be blessed. We keep following this through then, about Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, to Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter 17. There's something about Jesus and there's something about God that's displayed here uh, in this passage. In Exodus chap chapter 17, as the children of Israel are making their way, they've left Egypt and they're, they're making their way towards the promised land. They had trouble along the way. They kept turning from God. And this is one of those instances. In Exodus chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of sin, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. And there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to, kill, to Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do with this people? A little more, and they will stone me. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people, and take you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water will come out of it that people may drink. And Moses did in the sight of the elders in Israel. And he named the place Massa and Meribah, because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, and because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Now, what does this have to do with the promise of God to redeem man from his sins? Well, Paul picks up on this in his writing in 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 4, as he's recounting to his audience the things that the children of Israel were going through, as they are being... Um, disrespectful and, and rebellious against God, Paul's using that to warn Christians not to do the same thing. He says there in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians in verse 4, All drank the same spiritual drink, for they were drinking from the spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Isn't that interesting? What does that mean? The rock's following with them, and the rock was Christ. Was Jesus Christ the, the mountain there at Horeb? What Paul is pointing to is that there's deliverance in Jesus Christ. That just as the people drank from the water that flowed from the rock there in Exodus chapter 17, God is providing us water from Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus says about that. If you drink this water, you'll never thirst. So in the, in the, in the thread here that we're following, we see deliverance. In God's plan. When things are looking bad and looking like the promise is not going to be fulfilled because the people have taken it so far off line, off, off, off the way, God provides deliverance. There's also the idea of the cornerstone. And we've been talking about this in our Sunday morning class in Peter about the cornerstone. We go from Exodus to Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28 and verse 16. Therefore, the Lord, uh, therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. There's lots of prophecy in the book of Isaiah. The prophets prophesied to the, their immediate audience, but there's always those overtones of the coming Messiah. There's always the overtones of God's deliverance for everyone. And we see it here. God says, I'm laying and Zion a cornerstone. And then Peter, as we've been studying, picks up on that in other places too. Other writers of the New Testament do as well. What, who is that cornerstone? What is that cornerstone? That cornerstone is Jesus Christ. So here Isaiah is saying that there's coming a time when God's going to establish in Zion, which is the, is the seed of God's power, something that's going to be built, a foundation from which something is going to be built upon. And we know that that is the Lord's church that's going to be built upon that foundation, as we find out from Peter's writing. So here we have, in the, in the thread that we're following, we have deliverance for the people, uh, for God's people, and then we have the foundation that's going to be established by God himself in Jesus Christ. It was mentioned there 
uh, back in Genesis 22 in the promise to Abraham about this, this idea of the seed. Paul picks up on this in his writing in Galatians. In Galatians 3 and verse 16, he says, Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed, that is Christ. So here we have a New Testament writer confirming, further explaining, establishing what the Old Testament writer was saying. What the Old Testament text said there, as God says to Abraham, through your seed all nations will be blessed. Now Paul's saying, he's talking about Christ. All the way back there to the promise of Abraham. He was talking about the coming Messiah, and that is Christ. And that brings us back to where we started here with the idea of the fullness of time. In Galatians 4, as we've read, verses 4 and 5, When the fullness of time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In these very short examples here, we've traced all the way back to Genesis to now when Paul says the fullness of time. We've traced the promise of God. He said that this was going to happen. We see that promise being sustained along the way. And then Paul comes to Galatians 4 and says, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. All the promises, all the sustaining of that promise that takes place throughout scripture is culminated right here in Galatians 4 in Paul's writing. When he says the fullness of time. It couldn't have been earlier. It couldn't have been later. We can ask the question, why did it take so long? Or why was it so long ago? It doesn't matter. It's God's plan. He is the one who established it. It's his timeline that goes forth. So what does this all mean for us? We can start by understanding this, that God keeps his promises. We, we sometimes say that tongue-in-cheek, but can't you see what we've just looked at today, what we've just scratched the surface, how God keeps his promises? He has promised heaven and hell. God has promised heaven and hell. Look with me in John chapter 14 for just a moment. John chapter 14. Here's a familiar passage to us. When our Lord speaks about what's ahead for those who obey him. In John chapter 14, beginning verse 1, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe in me also. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I am going. Jesus has promised us, God has promised us through Jesus, that there is a heaven. And Jesus himself has gone there to prepare the, prepare the way for us. But he's also promised us that there's a hell. 
Look over in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26 and 27. It says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. So just as God has promised that there is a place awaiting for those who are loyal, those who serve him, those who are part of the kingdom, but there's a place for those awaiting. There's also a place prepared for those who are disrespectful to God, who do not obey God, who are not part of the kingdom. That place is just as real as heaven is. So we have a choice to make. We also understand about God that he knows his timetable. And only he knows his timetable. In Matthew chapter 24, as Jesus is talking about the coming destruction of Jerusalem with the overtones of the coming judgment, he mentions there in verse 36 that only the Father alone knows when the day and the hour is coming. Not even Jesus knows. Only the Father knows. He's the only one that knows the timetable in which all these events are going to take place and unfold. What does that mean to us? It means to us that we need to be ready. We don't know. We don't know when that time is. There in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus goes on to say in verse 42, Therefore be on alert, for you do not know which day the Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on alert and would have not allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at the hour which you do not think he will. So we need to be ready. We don't know when that time is coming. Jesus is saying here, you know, if you know when the thief's coming to your house, you're going to make sure your doors are locked, right? That makes sense. We don't know when the thief's coming. So we need to be ready all the time. Peter, in his writing, puts it this way. In 2 Peter 3, beginning in verse 8, it says, Do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that, the Lord, uh, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. Verse 9, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slow to, slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You see, each day that we wake up and have another day in this life, that's God's mercy. He's giving us another day to get things right. But there's going to come a time when there's no more days. There's going to come a time when we don't have any more chances to get things right. And we don't know when that day is. So the message to us is to be ready. To make sure that we are ready when the Lord comes back. Because there's another fullness of time that's ahead of us. That fullness of time when Jesus comes back as he said he would. We need to be ready for that day. If you're not a child of God, I encourage you to become one. I encourage you to become a part of the kingdom. To come into the fold. 
to make sure that you are ready when Jesus comes back. He said he would. God has promised that he would. God keeps his promises. Let's be ready for that time. If as a child of God, you don't feel like you're ready, I encourage you to make the changes in your life. There's still time in this day left. There's time in this day that you can make changes and make yourself right with God. Whatever your needs might be, you can let them be known by coming forward as we stand and sing to encourage you.